日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast for yet another episode. This is Chris here with Nate. Hello. And、uh, today we'll be talking about the、uh, Russian attempts to open Japan for trading in the 18th century、uh, and their incursions in the Kuril Island chain and, and that kind of fun stuff. So,、uh, before we get started, if you happen to be listening to the podcast on a computer, you might want to pop up Google Maps just so you can get the Kuril Island chains.、Uh, In front of you, just to kind of get an idea. But、uh, if you don't happen to have one in front of you, we can kind of describe it a little bit. Basically, it's a string of it's a string of islands extending from Kamchatka Peninsula down to、uh, sort of the eastern tip of Hokkaido. And、uh, I, I would say the、uh, distance is probably somewhere between 800 and 1,000 miles. So it's, it's a whole lot of islands that.、Uh, does that sound right? 800 to 1,000 miles? That was just eyeball guess. 13, yeah, 810 miles、okay. from,、uh, yeah, between Hokkaido and、uh, Kamchatka. Oh, okay. So, what we'll be talking about today are the Russian, the Russian incursions andor exploration of the Kuril Islands and also sort of the push towards Japan to open it up for trade. Neither of which seemed to be very effective in the 18th century. I'm not really sure what you think about that, Nate, but it, it seemed like they, they had a whole lot of.、Uh, We're, we want you to join the Russian Empire and a whole lot of Karelians saying, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they, they pretty much、uh, were, were trying to, as part of, you know, Russian attempts to expand their empire to the east and uh, get, uh, you know, outlets to the Pacific Ocean,、uh, which I think is. You know, Russians trying to get outlets to warm water, weather、uh, ports is a, is a theme through Russian history. You know, early on, I mean, and, and we'll go into more detail as we go, but, you know, early in the, on in、uh, the, the 17th century, they, you know, sailed around and said, hi, you're now part of Russia. And the, the population there said, what's Russia,、uh, basically. And,、uh, yeah, it wasn't very successful. Yeah, I think they, my impression is they kind of took over Kamchatka and started, started getting into that Akhatsk region,、mm-hmm. uh, probably around the 1630s or 1640s. At least that was kind of my impression. So they were, they were busy. And, you know, when you think about it, that's a, that's a heck of a long way, too. So I'm kind of curious how they,、uh, were consistent, how they had, had such an effective line of communication from that area back to,、uh, you know, wherever it was they were communicating with Moscow or, St. Petersburg or what have you. And、right. uh, how they were getting supplies over there, too. I mean, this is a, this is a, a re- extremely remote outpost. When you look at Kamchatka on a map, it's like, it's the middle, it's literally the middle of nowhere. Well, and if you, you know, for people who may not be familiar with it, yeah, it's, a, it's an isolated peninsula jutting off the very eastern edge of the Eurasian continent,、uh, you know, south, but、uh, it's all very far. North in, in what we could probably call Arctic almost regions, kind of like、uh, Alaska. I mean, you know, not Arctic in the sense of the, within the Arctic Circle, but in、uh, severe, remote, you know, even beyond Siberia, 
in terms of of Russian geography. So yeah, I mean to, to be going out here and and setting it up, you know, it's kind of like you know in the in the history of imperialism and everybody trying to claim lands, you know, these are the it's it's great because you can get access to the sea, but you know there's not a whole lot out there at this time that's that's valuable and worth uh, worth fighting over. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I found it interesting too. Uh, I guess as we kind of get into 18th century relations between Russia and Japan, I found it extremely interesting that they their only re- point of reference for where Japan was located was that it was mm-hmm. somewhere to the southwest of Kamchatka. It didn't it didn't occur to them. Uh, or I, I guess they didn't have <laughs> effective maps, but uh, Hokkaido is roughly 200 miles off the coast of Russia. I mean, if you look at the Amur region of uh, the Otthotsk Sea, there, uh, they could have right. taken a 200-mile voyage off of the uh, you know mainland Russia and and hit Hokkaido, but they they really had no idea where it was located, which is kind of funny because it's it's it was like this big mystery, even though Portuguese and uh, you know others had been sailing there. You know, for the last, I guess by this point, probably 100, 100 to 150 years, if not more. So it's right, kind, of, right. kind of interesting. Their only frame of reference was, oh, it's it's off somewhere south, southeast of Kamchatka, without realizing, yeah, it's only 200 miles off the coast of, of mainland Russia. Sort of sort of interesting. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to know um, at this point how much uh, exploration had been done. I mean, had they even, you know, gone south from Sakhalin? It would even be you could even see it, right? From uh, nor- from the northern tip of Hokkaido, you can see, you can you can see Sakhalin, which is currently owned by Russia. Uh, at one point, it was Japanese territory. At another point, it was uh, divided between them. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 it goes back into the questions that we've addressed on the podcast before of, of what exactly is Japan as a geographical entity and at what time does it become uh you know the four main islands that we think of now plus assorted little ones you know at one time uh from the Japanese perspective you know Sakhalin was Japanese territory the Kuril Islands were Japanese territory and at at, at one time you know from the Russian perspective and and as it is now uh, those are Russian territory. Uh, the, the question, or, you know, I mean, the interesting discussion point is that, uh, you know, at, at this time that we're talking about, the, the 1600s or whatever, it was really neither. Uh, and the process by which both sides, uh, choose to go about trying to claim, you know, this is ours or this is not, and, and so on and so forth is, is an interesting, Example of you know the the type of territorial grabbing that was going on you know from 1600s all the way through you know the early uh, well shoot the the middle of the 1900s yeah and is still sort of ongoing today in the disputes over this specifically the you know the, the northern territories but we'll get into that. Yeah. Although to go over the uh, geography a little bit, just so people know what we're talking about, there's there's maybe four four or five islands that really come up. The uh, the two or three islands closest to the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is uh, Shumusu, which is uh, just off the coast of uh, Kamchatka, and then it's it's right next to Paramushir, uh, and then the next one Onekotan. Uh, those three islands are, are where the Russians were really active in in fur trapping and and 
raising havoc with the, and I'm quoting here, the hairy Karelians, uh, as they called all of the peoples of the Kuril island chain, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. I guess they had big beards or something. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, and, uh, so that's where the, uh, their, their main action was while they, early on. And then, uh, as you get up to Hokkaido, you've got, uh, Urup, which is probably about roughly the third island out, Itarup, which is the second island out, and then, uh, Kunashir and, uh, Shikotan, which are kind of just off the coast of Hokkaido. And, uh, at least in the, the 17th century, probably the 16th century, it seems that, uh, the, the Japanese were pretty actively trading with the islanders on Kunashir and Itarup and Shikotan. Right. Although probably not much further than that. Uh, most likely they really didn't have reason to. And uh, since there were a lot of uh, Japanese traders in the area, traders, trappers, fishermen, that kind of thing, a lot of them would get uh, shipwrecked in, in Russian waters, either be it Siberia or Kam- Kamchatka or, or some of these islands. And so a lot of times Japanese sailors fell into the hands of uh, the Russians, um, which you know I don't remember if we've talked about it in detail, but the uh, maritime regulations during the Edo period kind of stated if you're Japanese and you leave Japanese soil, then you're not. If you come back, we're going to jail you or kill you. So that kind of put the Japanese in a difficult position, uh, or the sailors in a difficult position, because a lot of the time uh, the Russians would try to use the excuse of, oh, we're repatriating Japanese sailors to try and push for their own treaties or push for trade or what have you. So the the, the poor Japanese sailors were pawns of the Russian Empire in trying to get to open Japan in the 18th century. Right. And uh, a lot of them were also, uh, a few of them were sent to Russia. They met, uh, like, Catherine II and various other people. They they taught Japanese, that kind of thing. But it, apparently, for the most part, a lot of these, and understandably so, were just uneducated fishermen, so they weren't really helpful in that. Although, apparently, there was one or two who were very good at it, but they died. One of them, I guess, was already in his 40s, and he died. And another one who was 20 or 21, who was apparently very intelligent, uh, died of something in Russia. So their Japanese language program really didn't advance all that much through all, through all of this. But uh, the sailors showing up in their shores always gave them the excuse and or opportunity to sail the ship over to Japan and see if they could push for trade. Yeah, just, I mean, as a way of, of also kind of setting the stage for what we're talking about. I mean, in this time, uh, we've, I think we've talked before on the podcast about, uh, Hokkaido and the Japanese, depending on how you, you, you view it, uh, settling or conquest or whatever of Hokkaido and their, their, uh, treatment of the, uh, the Ainu, the residents of the Kuril Islands and of Sakhalin, uh, were uh, related uh, or were the same as the Ainu, all you know, known in uh, variously by different names as uh, the Nivik, or I think is how you say it, uh, N I V K H. Uh, yeah, I was. And, I, I can't remember. Unfortunately, I, was, I can't find. I think it was Nivka. Yeah. I think is what they they called it. Nivka. I, th- I think okay, so. Or, or, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, it's also I believe the uh, known as the uh, the Gilyak. Uh, people. Uh, yeah, there are a few different groups in that area. That, yeah. That, that area, but um, you know, one thing that I, I came across which was kind of interesting was uh, in a book that I, I happened on uh, called View of the Russian Empire During the Reign of Catherine the Second, published in mm-hmm. 1799. It's actually available online, but uh, they they actually mention uh, I don't know how germane this is to the actual topic at hand, but uh, basically everything north of the Matsumaya domain up through the Kurils was was basically all 
inhabited by what, what they call the hairy Kirills, which right. uh, they basically, uh, I, I guess apparently, as far as they were concerned, pretty much everyone who lived on the islands and on Hokkaido were, were essentially the same group of people. So I, I don't know how true that is, you know, culturally, but uh, apparently everyone kind of considered them the same. And it also is interesting because it kind of is a window on the fact that Japan, even though it, it well, I, I guess like we talked about before, it really didn't have a solid northern boundary. It was kind right. of, well, this is ours, we just don't know how far it goes. <laughs> Essentially, I mean, you know, it started out as, as the Matsumai domain in southern Hokkaido, and and uh, they had a trade relationship, and then eventually it, it uh, you know, much like we talked about before, it, uh, it it progressed sort of like the American West, where... Uh, you know, at one point it was just trade relations with the, uh, the Native American, uh, or American Indians. Uh, and then eventually became, okay, well now we're taking your land and now we're, you know, uh, putting you in designated places. What, what, what's interesting, I think, is that, uh, you know, the, the same group, the, I mean, they're all, the, you're, you're right, they're essentially the same group of people in the sense of, you know, they're, they're, they've got subdivisions, but, uh, generally speaking, they were the same whether they were in Hokkaido or Sakhalin or um, on the mainland around the uh, the Amur River area, uh, or in the Kuril Islands, and and were you know uh, whether we're using the Russians' term uh, the hairy Kurils or or um, you know calling them the Nivka or, or whatever uh, you know these were the people who who basically. Uh, had settled in this area. So, um, and, you know, the reason I, I want to bring that up is that, you know, yes, we're going to be talking a little bit about the, the territorial uh, claims made var- variously by the Japanese or by the Russians, but, you know, there's a group of people living here uh, who, you know, are hunting and fishing and living their life and, uh, uh, trading in furs that they that they caught with uh, the Japanese and the Russians, and uh, but as as in the case of of many uh, many of these sorts of uh, you know many examples of this sort of thing, uh, nobody really asks them, hey, can we can we incorporate your territory into ours? It, it just kind of ends up happening. Although uh, early on, the uh, the Russians would would go to the Kuril Islands islanders and say, uh, "Would you like to join the? I don't, I don't know the terms they put, but basically, would you uh, would you like to join the Russian Empire?" And they would be like, "Not really." Although apparently, they got village elders in, on one of the islands to, I guess, sign off on a, a treaty, which I don't know how <laughs> you know yeah. how binding. It was interesting in 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 one of the articles that we read. Yeah, that the the guy like. Showed up and uh, the the Russian explorer showed up and um, had them sign this document, which was basically saying, you know, yes, we pledge allegiance to uh, Peter the Great, uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, the 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 Kuril Island natives there had no idea what they were signing and were like, okay, yeah, whatever. If this makes you happy, go, you know, and makes you go away, sure, we'll sign it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then he sails to another island. And um, and and tries the same thing, and and this one they said, no, you know, uh, basically piss off. Uh, so it was uh, let's see, what was the? Yeah, the expedition was in 1711 uh, by Ivan Petrovich Kozarevsky, bringing 60 Russians in rowboats south from uh, Kamchatka. So yeah, 
Yeah, he's a, yeah, actually, he's an interesting character. Um, I don't know how far into his informa- how far into his life you got, but apparently he was sort of a, a bandit leader and a, a Cossack bandit leader who killed a tax collector. And uh, they, they sort of ran rampant across Kamchatka for a while, uh, wreaking havoc and burning villages and, and basically robbing people. And then they, they, he came upon this idea, because figuring, you know, the Russians are going to, you know, they're going to get him because he's a criminal. So he came upon this idea. Well, how, how about we do this? We'll go, uh, go claim the, the Kuril Islands for Mother Russia, and then they'll have right. to uh, let us back into the, you know, into the fold, which I thought was, was pretty interesting. You know, it's kind of, it kind of is like the Wild West over there. Sure. Yeah, it uh he said uh, he landed on uh Shimusu uh and uh opened fire among the natives and co- you know coerced them to promise eternal subjection to the Tsar. Of course, you know, did they have any idea of what they were saying? No, but it got the Russians to stop shooting at them and 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 they went away. So, hey, whatever, right? Yeah, uh, from the Karelians' perspective, that's one of those uh, things too that I've never really, I wasn't really clear to me is how the, were they communicating with the Kareel Islanders? Because you know you get a lot of this. Uh, oh, they they just they talk, did this. They talked about that, but you know they usually they would they would go with like a Japanese interpreter. But does that mean that this was a Japanese interpreter who maybe knew? Yeah, the, I, I I wondered really about clear. that. I wondered about that too. I think it, uh, one of the articles called that into question, saying you know that the Japanese interpreter had to uh you know it, it's kind of like when the portuguese arrived in japan in the 1540s and had to communicate through a uh a chinese person who couldn't actually talk to the japanese but was writing in characters on the sand is what it, what it, almost what it sounded like to me in the sense that you know the japanese interpreting for the russians uh would have to rely on one of the natives you know the karelians uh understanding japanese and so you're still doing, you know, three different layers of translation and, uh, and, and, and all the fun, exciting issues that that can create. So, yeah, yeah apparently, uh, Kazarevsky, he, uh, when he came up with his idea, he, he gave his speech and he told the men that he's, uh, the, the purpose is to investigate Kamchatka and the nearby islands, to inquire into what government the people owe allegiance, and to force tribute from those who have no sovereign. To inform ourselves as fully as may be possible about Japan and the way thither, uh, what weapons the people have and how they wage war, whether they might be willing to enter into friendly and commercial relations with Russia, and if so, what kind of merchandise they might be induced to buy. So <laughs> he was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, you know, he he was uh, granted uh, you know a little bit of recognition, but then was eventually. Arrested on uh, charging, charges of uh, em- embezzlement, and he ended up uh, becoming a becoming a priest and uh, leading a rebellion in the uh, in the, the eastern territories there. Yeah. So interesting character, certainly. Yeah, he. Uh, I, I guess their travels kind of they they got to uh, Shimusu first. They went on to uh, Paramushir. And uh, Onekotan, the, the the two islands a little further out. Problem being, though, is that uh, the Paramushir was too well defended for them to really do anything. So effectively, they basically just went off to the first island, kind of, I guess, put- puttered around in the ocean, <laughs> land- making landing where they could for a couple of years, but really never made any headway. So it was, I would say, it was mainly a symbolic trip more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I thought it was an interesting point when one of the articles uh, describing this mentioned that uh, you know the the signed oath of allegiance that he extracted from the islanders on uh, Shimusu, whether that you know, and and it was interesting particularly because this was the article that the we were reading uh, Russia's attempts to open Japan by uh, Harry Emerson Wilds uh, in uh, the Russian Review of uh, Autumn 1945. Uh, and I, I highlight the fact that it was written in 1945 because of this. Uh, you know, this is right after or during, in fact, depending on when it was published uh, and when it was actually written, uh, the, you know, end of World War II and the Russians coming into uh, the war in the, in the very last weeks of it against Japan and taking the Kuril Islands, taking the southern half of uh, Sakhalin uh, and taking, you know, pushing down through Manchuria and taking uh, the northern half of Korea, uh, as we all know, you know, that that went swimmingly for future generations of... <laughs> and still is. Uh, ...of people dealing with it, yeah. So it, it's interesting that, you know, he's... Uh, that this author is writing that, you know, right at this time and saying, hey, you know, this... it, it would not surprise me if, if the Russians used this uh, extracted uh, letter of loyalty as a justification for their claims that they own the Kuril Islands uh, and and can take them from Japan uh, when that's exactly what they were doing at this time and to this day they still haven't given any of them back. Right. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I'm guessing probably at that point at the end of the war scholars were starting to get into uh, uh, the sort of the international boundaries and, and what what the arguments might be and how, how things were going to get split up. So it's probably right. because a lot of the articles I found were written right around that time. So I, I think that became a hot topic for a period of time because of that. But then later on, it, it really uh, now now it's little more than just history. So it doesn't really get much play because it, even though it's extremely interesting, I was I found this really interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so for whatever reason, uh, Peter the Great got interested in Japan in the 1710s, and uh, he was kind of the, the motivation behind probably Kozarevsky's decision to track down Japan and take the Kuril Islands for Mother Russia, which really didn't, <laughs> really wasn't effective. Uh, apparently, uh, after Peter's death in 1725, interest in Japan waned for a, a little while, but then Empress Anna got back into it. I, I guess uh, Kozarevsky talked her into uh, setting up another foray down the island chain and which happened in 1738 but i don't know how much you read on this but it, it's a really weird situation this is with uh uh bearing of bearing straight fame and uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. martin spanberg and william walton now apparently martin spanberg and william walton uh what were they they were uh navigators were they yeah well it sounded like they were um Captains, like sub captains underneath. Yeah, Spanberg was underneath Bering. And then Walton and Shelting were underneath him. And so Spanberg had control, had command of a, a squadron of ships underneath Bering. And Bering um, didn't actually go down the Kuril chain, did he? Uh, I didn't really get that. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, he, he basically assigned Spanberg the task. And Spanberg uh, and Bering, we should point out, are Danish. And uh, William Walton and Alexander Schelting, uh, who served underneath Spanberg commanding smaller ships, uh, were British. And so it's it's interesting to me that, you know, these four are all 
doing all this exploration for the Russians. Yeah. And the, and then it gets really strict. This this particular expedition gets strange because, you know, they talk about uh, reaching Mutsu province in Honshu in 1739 and meeting with Bakufu representatives in, in Mutsu and various various tales of Japan. But then I'm finding things that are basically talking about how they, they may have faked their logs and actually, ha- you know, some of them ended up in Korea. Just It's, it's a really bizarre situation. I don't know how much you uh, right. read on that, but did it did that make any sense to you? Well, it sounded like, you know, Spanberg and especially Walton didn't like each other, even though, you know, they were supposed to be one wor- one working for the other. Uh so they they each set out independently uh basically trying to be the first to, you know, get good uh relations with the Japanese and and it, and it sounds like neither one of them had much success, but they both tried to write down, you know, hey, I made it to Mito and met with these people. And, and Walton was like, you know, I went to Shikoku and, you know, met, went, went to this place, uh, you know, Kochi and met with officials there and, and did trade. And I'm the first person to, you know, trade with the, the Japanese or the first, uh, Russian, you know, endorsed person anyway. Um, but, it 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 seems that um you know when there's reports got back to moscow they you know the problem was that they both had really bad maps and that you know spanberg when they when they looked at it it, it made more sense that his story made more sense but that uh you know if <laughs> that he was where he's at if you looked at his map but if you looked at where he said he was, but using Walton's map, then he was in Korea. Right, right. And and I mean, it it was really it's it seems really convoluted, and, and that you know neither one of them had any idea what was where they really were. And and of course, you know, you're going ashore. It's not exactly like you you know they had good intelligence or understanding of where anything was. So or street signs. Yeah. I mean, I find it odd that, you know, one of them would be, have enough knowledge to even claim that they, you know, landed in, uh, Kochi, uh, on Shikoku. I mean, it's not exactly like a household name that people would, you know, know, oh yeah, I landed in Kochi and that's in Japan. I mean, people today in the United States couldn't tell you where Shikoku was much, you know, so how could a, a, uh, an Englishman working for Russia in, the 1700s have just randomly picked that out of a hat and said, "Yeah, that's where I landed." It just see, I don't. I mean, it's it's it doesn't really explain it very well in the article, but it just seems very. The whole thing seems odd. Yeah, it said they 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 landed in Mutsu, Awa, and Izu, and actually there, it gives a name of uh, a Sendai official that they met by the name of Shiba Kanshichiro, and mm-hmm. if if they've got this name Shiba Kanshichiro, then that's definitely a Japanese name. So someone must have met them somewhere <laughs> but right it just it seemed really strange i couldn't tell if they faked it or if maybe each guy was trying to undermine the other back in moscow saying oh that's that's fake his records are horrible this is not right his maps are no good i, I couldn't really tell if if you know that they really did do what they it, said it but the other guy like was a, just uh trying it to it sounds un- like it's a combination of both plus the fact that neither one of them really understood where they were or, or who they were dealing with so, you know, even if they were trying to be accurate rather than what's the word, um, rather than embellish what they were doing, 
you know, they couldn't be. So it, it's interesting. It's also interesting to me, you know, that the, yeah, you know, I, I mean, all the, the, they, they obviously were making contact in some form with, with Japanese because, you know, they're making an impression on the Bakufu and in, in this sense of, you know, the Russians are trying to come south and invade, not invade our territory quite at this point, but are, are trying to make inroads into our territory, uh, is certainly felt, uh, by the Tokugawa Bakufu, uh, even as I think early as the mid 1700s. So certainly it's, uh, it's, it's, it's registering somewhere. Yeah. I, I'm, it's, it seems they, they did get somewhere, but it just, the whole situation seemed really strange, but, uh, yeah. I think in, in, I guess, uh, you know, with the records that exist, most likely they, they, they got somewhere in Japan, but it really isn't clear where. But, you know, there's, there's also this theme, uh, throughout the 17, uh, throughout the 18th century with Japan where, it, which is odd, which is Russian ships will, will land on the shores in Japan, they'll be tra- treated hospitably, and then, uh, maybe a Bakufu official will, will eventually show up and say, we can't trade with you, and our laws normally would say we're supposed to, you know, Take you captive and sink your ship, but since you aren't aware of our laws, we'll let you go. And that happened a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't know if uh, why you know. I, although at, later on we'll get into uh, Reznov and his his uh, antics, but before then the Japanese seemed pretty accommodating and nice, but they they just refused, obviously refused to trade, refused to sign anything. But I, I guess they're they kind of felt like, well, if they're here, we'll just kind of let them take on some water, get some food, whatever, and then just hope they'll go away and and that was kind of the extent of it for the most part right right well and then you have you know as we as we move further on you know later russian expeditions end up uh, bringing along japanese with them who you know usually sailors who had been shipwrecked in the Aleutians or or uh you know on russian soil and of course they did not want to go back to japan uh because of the laws, the way that they were written, was that if you know a Japanese left Jap- uh, Japan and came back, they would be severely punished, uh, even if it was accidental, you know, not trying to leave, but just it, for the the mere act of doing so would was a, a punishable offense in a in a severe manner. You yeah, know, life I, I think, imprisonment uh, would be getting yeah. off easy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm under the impression that that happened to almost every single repatriation. Right. Uh, every time the Russians brought someone back to say, "Here, look how nice we are. We brought your guys back." Uh, I, I have a feeling that all, every single one of those guys was was jailed. Even uh, Daikoku Kodayu, which we'll get more into right. later, but uh, right. he was he was outside of Japan for eight years. He met uh, Catherine the Great. He in fact yeah, he worked as a, <laughs> as a as a university professor and, and like instructor of you know teaching Russian explore you know. Teaching Russians interested in exploring Japan uh, about Japan and and some I guess basic level of Japanese and and so on and whatever. But from the description of him, he doesn't sound like he's quite the best teacher. He seemed uh, really he seemed really weird. Uh, he, like a, he was quite a character when he met Catherine. The great, the, uh, yeah. yeah, he he wore a big black hat and a big cane and uh, a silk yeah. suit with. Uh, but embroidered in rows over blue brocade, set off by huge red buttons. And uh, right. I guess when when she extended her hand for the 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 kiss, uh, Catherine the Great, he uh, licked her hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He he. Yeah. You didn't quite understand 
Russian customs, apparently, uh, which, you know, would have been to kiss the hand. But, um... He was a treasure trove when he when he was sent back to Japan. The uh, the scholars yeah. got a ton of information out of him, but it's not clear to me what happened after that. If if they were just interviewing him in his poor jail cell or or, or what? It, it it seemed to me that he was then you know he was jailed when he when he went back. But um, we I mean we should explain that uh, as you know he was teaching in this school in Irkutsk, uh, which is in West, Eastern excuse me Eastern Russia. You know one of his Students was uh, Lieutenant Adam Laxman, who then went on to be to lead a an expedition to Japan uh, that you know to the Matsumaya area uh, with uh, Daikokuya as one of his you know guides and uh, interpreters. And of course, they got to Matsumaya and were immediately all put in jail. And then, like you you know mentioned, was was common the uh, shogunate official who showed up said, you know, this is what we usually do to people who break the law and, and, and in, come into our country, but since you're foreigners and don't know it, we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. Um, you know, you must go back to Kamchatka and never come back, but, um, and oh, by the way, the shipwrecked sailors that you brought back, if you leave them here, we're going to keep them in jail. Uh, if, you know, you can take them with you. <laughs> and I thought this was interesting because Quote, by our law, shipwrecked sailors are the property of that nation upon whose shores they may be cast. So from the Japanese perspective, you know, from from a, you know, not only Russian, but I would even say Western perspective, because this is a lot of the reason that, uh, uh, you know, later on in the mid 1800s, you know, the United States and, and the British, uh, one of the reasons why they were, were so eager to storm into Japan and and open things up was because of the treatment the Japanese had uh, given their shipwrecked sailors of uh, American and British and and so on, you know, had had given their the, them not particularly good treatment. Uh, but it, so it's interesting, you know, that by this statement here we see the Japanese side of it is, hey, once you land on our on our shores, you know, you're ours. Yeah. And we expect the same thing of any Japanese that lands on your shores. Hey, they're yours. Do what you want with them. Yeah. So it it was funny. Well, not probably not funny for the for the for the Japanese uh who were left behind at the time, but uh uh Laxman decided to, you know, return back to Russia with his, you know, 50 Russian crewmen, but they left all their Japanese uh you know, the shipwreck sailors who they brought with them behind. Uh and right. So, they were a uh, they were a treasure trove for the, the Japanese scholars though they wrote numerous volumes on on Russia based on that but it wasn't clear to me if they especially because they mentioned Daikoku Yakodayu by name as being the the biggest source of information on Russia but it's not really clear if they kind of gave him a, a pass because he was their Russian expert or if they were like uh, the law's the law and he, they were basically interviewing him in his jail cell so I'm not really clear on that right right and and then you know just to kind of Further highlight the confusion and the and the how difficult it was to actually get points across here. You know, Laxman goes back and having received a uh, a letter from uh, Kimura, uh, who was the shogunate official, uh, who he met with and said, "Hey, you know, you guys leave and don't come back." He has this letter uh, that he receives from him, uh, with, you know, with an official seal on it, and he takes it back to the to the Russian court and claims that it's a a document that that allows permission to trade at Nagasaki. 
Uh, and in, in reality, what it said was, was it was merely an introduction to the officials at Nagasaki in case they happened to pass by there. But it was in no way, you know, official permission for them to trade. Yeah, it actually says, uh, it says, you will enter the harbor after taking notice of the admonishments. The teaching of Christianity is strictly forbidden. You will not bring in statues, implements, books, etc., or you will be certainly harmed. If, after having fully realized this, you come to this area, Nagasaki, we shall study it, and you may even be allowed to land. For this purpose, we are giving you this paper. That (laughs) that was the extent of it. Yeah. So it's, it's. This was the, uh, this was the 1790s, and. This was uh, Catherine II, uh, basically, after, after Laxman got back, I guess she really wasn't all that interested in it, so she just kind of didn't, didn't want to pursue it. And so that letter kind of sat around for about a decade to be later used by Nikolai Petrovich Rezanov. But before we get there, kind of step back a little bit. There was still a lot of activity between the first trip there by Kozrevsky and then, oh yeah, well, in the Creels anyway, and uh, Laxman. Um, actually, there's a, there was quite an interesting section uh, or interesting part of history there about uh, Ben Yavsky, uh, who right. now that guy that guy was was a uh, uh, really bizarre character. No, I, I don't know if bizarre is the right word, but he was more like a I don't even know what you'd call him like a like a swashbuckling I don't know sort of anti-hero I guess <laughs> he was a, I, I guess he was a, a Russian-born Polish man who was kind of in trouble with the law and he. For whatever reason, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but he was, uh, I guess, uh, exiled to Siberia, and he escaped, and he was captured and exiled again, and he escaped, and, and him and a bunch of guys stole a ship. Right, and, uh, right. Basically, they, they, they went down the Kuril Island chain, and telling everyone, uh, I, I guess they, had, they wrote letters or whatever to the, the, the shogunate, basically saying, well, we were actually sent down here by the Russians to scout you out for our military venture coming up next year to attack your islands, but... You know, the the Japanese have been so kind to me that I, I wanted to let you know what was coming, which none of it, none of, you know, not a word of which is has any basis in reality whatsoever. He was just trying to cause trouble between Japan and Russia, and right. and I guess he did he did get get around a lot. He I think he actually did land, uh, like I said, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he might have actually landed on, on Japanese soil in one or two places, and uh, you know, he was basically say he was just pretending that he was a, a Russian scout who was sent to basically scout out Japan for uh, the best, most effective path from Russia to Japan so that Russia can invade Japan or something along those lines. Maybe not quite that extreme, but he was basically just trying to turn Russia and Japan against, well, turn Japan against Russia. And it was, it's pretty interesting, you know, the the effect that that one guy had is that uh, even the common people in Edo were, were like, oh, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. So there was kind of a big Russian panic when this was going on, which was, uh, I guess, the 1770s. Right, right. Yeah, I definitely want to make note of that and then come back to it later on as we as we move further uh, along in in time. Uh, you know, it just goes to show how deep seated uh, and far far back the 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 thoughts of the Russians as a threat are to the Japanese people. Uh, and you know, historically, and, and so uh, you know, it's interesting when you when you think about that and then you look at. Uh, you know the debates leading up to World War II between the army, who always viewed Russia as the uh, greater threat, uh, and you know the navy, which uh, of course focused on the ocean and therefore looked west. I'm sorry, uh, looked uh, east uh, across the Pacific to the United States as a threat. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's just interesting to 
that that there's always been this long, you know, deep-seated fear uh, stretching back all the way to this time of, you know, what are the Russians doing? Uh, you know, the Russians is the big continental threat. So. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, early on, and for a while, it looks like there it was basically willful ignorance on the part of the the shogunate, or or at least the the officials, where they just refused to acknowledge that there was anything, you know, any any foreigners at all outside of Japan, because I guess they felt like, oh, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But uh, it was interesting after the Russia after that episode with uh, Benyovsky, some of the shogunate officials, I can't remember who it was, but uh, some of them were kind of. Saying, you know, we have Nagasaki has uh, fortifications, Matsumaya's fortifications. We need all of our harbors fortified, but that really never picked up any steam at all. So that really never went anywhere. Right. Okay, that's it for our look at the Russian incursions into northern Japan during the Edo period. We'll continue with part two in about two weeks. And in the meantime, please feel free to support the podcast by shopping at Amazon.com through the link provided on our blog website, which is SamuraiPodcast.com. There's also the Samurai Archives bookstore powered by Amazon.com and also the Cafe Press t-shirt shop. So you can support the podcast by purchasing things through any of those different avenues. And don't forget to give us a good rating on iTunes and leave a comment. So that's it for this week.